Here is what John is writing to the churches. He says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon gave, and to it the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon for. 
he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Amen. It'd be great if you had your Bibles open for this. We're going to be dipping through this in and out quite quickly. Um, There is a lot, an awful lot going on here, um, a lot of which we just won't be able to go into in in a lot of depth. Please feel free to come up to me at the end and ask me questions, and and I can tell you about some of the things that I've learned. But I, I, I hope that we just get a big overview of what's going on in this part of Revelation. And it's not complicated. There's a lot in here, but it's not complicated. And uh, the truths are wonderful. And, uh, and I hope that we get to do that tonight. On the 6th of June, 1944, the Allied forces embarked on the single biggest campaign of the Second World War. It was called Operation Overlord, or more commonly known as D-Day. And D-Day was a success. And on the back of that, the back of evil in Europe was broken. 
the resistance of Nazism had crumbled and victory was assured. And as much as evil was dealt that final blow on that day, the world was still left waiting for that final, final moment where there was no enemy left at all. The decisive victory over the enemy had been won and the end was now in sight. But the final battles leading up to VE Day had still yet to take place. And as we continue in our series in the book of Revelation, we see that this is where this passage sits in that scenario. As we've said about the book of Revelation, we see that as we draw back the curtain, we see that what's going on behind our earthly reality, it is revealed to us that we are involved in a major, major spiritual battle between God and the realm of Satan. And we'll see as we look at tonight's passage that the decisive victory over Satan has been won on the cross. D-Day, in effect, has happened. Satan's back has been broken and he is fully vanquished. And rightly, we celebrate. But in the light of that, we also see that the final battles of this war are still taking place. Even as Satan is vanquished, we, the church, are still fighting him until finally and fully we see real peace when Jesus comes again and he removes Satan, his power, and his forces once and for all, and we, church, are in that battle now. This is the time that we now inhabit, the time between the two comings of Christ, the time of war between the church and the powers of evil and the devil. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we know we're in a war, don't we? Because as much as these battles rage in the spiritual realm, they affect us now, this evening, in our very physical reality. Some of us are sitting here tonight, we may be bumping along the Christian life. We acknowledge that we're not perfect, we acknowledge that we wrestle with temptation, but we're doing okay. But some of us are sitting here tonight feeling the enormous weight of abject failure. Your weak walls that you attempt to set up against worldly temptation, they're being stormed on a daily basis. You've got your conscience ringing in your head like a clanging bell, not to give in, but you always do. You wake up every morning under the weight of sin, under the weight of facing the world, and as the long day of personal infighting draws out ahead of you like a never-ending tunnel, you groan with the question, will I ever get to the end of this as a Christian? Well, that's exactly what this battle that we read of today feels like. And for those of you who are feeling that, Revelation shows us that that is the way that we should be feeling. That shouldn't surprise us. We're in the middle of a battle. And some days it will be horrific. Feeling like you're at the point of losing it all. Well, may I start tonight by saying that in this passage there is unimaginable hope. And I'm not saying that just to, to make you feel good about yourself. This is true. The picture of spiritual battle is not here just to sap your energy, but to give you hope. Hope that victory over Satan is already assured. Hope that what you're going through is, is normal and there are people around you who are in that. And hope that one day you will struggle no more. 
And for those of us who feel comfortable and entirely at ease with our Christian life, that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but this passage comes to you with a warning. You are in the middle of a battle. And there will come a day, maybe many days, of hardship or personal failure or tremendous difficulty or tragic loss. And while the going is good, learn to build up your foundations on the victor, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who wins, who will hold you in those trials and battles to come. That's what we read. Again, I'm not saying that to burst your bubble. I'm telling you that because it's true. This Revelation, chapter 1, is written to the church, which is a partnership of people who are suffering for the gospel in patient endurance. And we should all read it as such. But before we delve into the passage, let us pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for what we read tonight. It is full of profoundly wonderful things. Lord, and we ask that wherever we are tonight, we would see and understand that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle, but that you are our victor, and onto you we throw ourselves. And Lord, we do that tonight as we read this. May you illuminate it for us. May it do us good, and may we leave here feeling like we have really met with you, the Lamb who wins. We pray all these things in your strong name. Amen. We're going to take this very simply. Uh, Three chapters, um, a heading, that's what I've got here. Uh, Feel free to follow them through. Our first one, chapter 12, a spiritual war is waging, the three protagonists. Now, what Andy said last week, um, reminding us of how we read Revelation, is incredibly helpful, and I reiterate it again. And as much as I've likened what we're looking at tonight to a period in history, be warned, we are not reading a passage tonight that equates to a period of history. Andy reminded us that with the seven cycles that we've been looking at, the cycles of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, we are seeing the period between the two comings of Christ told over and over again, just from different angles, but all with the same outcome. The end of the world as we understand it and the final victory of Christ. Andy also reminded us that the book of Revelation is not chronological. It's not a chronological account of that history. It's not as if the 1980s were in chapter 9 and 2020 is in chapter 15 or so on. But as we've gone around these cycles up until this point, tonight we take a break from that literary tool and we take a good look at the reality of these cycles, the reality of the Christian life as a whole in the age of the church. That is the age between the birth of Christ and his ascension into heaven and the return of Christ. And the reality is that we are in this war. And chapter 12 reveals to us the spiritual backdrop to the war that we are in. And our first question is, who are the protagonists of this war? Who are the main players? Well, they are a woman, a dragon, and a male child. Read with me again. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, very quickly and very simply, the woman represents God's people, the church. You'll notice that the sun, moon, and stars that are associated with, associated with the woman here are images that are represented all the way back in Genesis, if you remember, from one of Joseph's dreams. Um, that's where the sun, the moon, and the star all bow down to, to Joseph's star. And in that dream, the sun, the moon, and the stars represented the 12 brothers, who were themselves the 12 um, representations of the entirety of God's people in the Old Testament. That's the, the true Israel. So the woman represents the Old Testament church. The woman also represents the church of the New Testament as well. We see her being persecuted by the dragon. Now, the dragon is fairly obviously Satan, and Satan is persecuting the church today. So the woman represents God's church throughout history. The church of the Old and New Testaments, the church of the Old and New Israel. And as the dragon symbolizes Satan, we see that the male child is quite simply Christ himself, born out of Israel through woman, given authority to rule the nations with a rod of iron, an image that is taken from Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm. And this child is constantly under attack from Satan, the dragon, as soon as he is born. We might think of um, Herod here wanting to kill Jesus just as soon as he is born. Then we have seven heads and crowns or diadems. That's of the dragon. Um, the head represents authority. The horns represent incredible power and strength. Satan, in other words, is not to be trifled with. He's an incredibly impressive character. He has authority and he has power and strength. But we read, despite his hunger for the murder of the Christ, something he assumes he may have achieved on the cross, we ultimately see that he fails as Christ rises from the dead. Or to use the language of verse 5, Christ is caught up to God and to his throne, where the decisive victory over the dragon has been won, and the Christ remains beyond Satan's grasp, seated at the right hand of the Father. So Satan fails on earth to get rid of the Christ. But as we read on, we see he tries again, but this time in the heavenly realms. This is so brilliantly read um, by James. Thank you very much. Verses 7 to 12, we see Satan taking on the angel Michael and failing at that. But the important thing to mention here is how Satan tries to battle it out in heaven. What's his choice of ammunition? It is accusation. Verse 10 and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan levels accusation against the church of Christ. It's like he goes to the throne room of God and says to him, Do you really know what Samor is like? Do you really know what he's been thinking? The grudges he bears, the people he's hurt, the thoughts he thinks, the things he's done in private. How can you love someone like that? 
He says, are you aware, great God of heaven, what that man sitting in church tonight has done behind his work colleagues' back this week? What that woman has said about her friends in public? What that child of yours has done to his parents? Just look at them sitting in church. They're not eligible to enter your heaven. That's what Satan does. He wants to take us out. And many of us really feel the effects of those accusations. I'm a lost cause, we may think, in our worst moments. I have sinned once too many times. But look at the answer that comes back from heaven, verse 11. But they have conquered him by, not by goodness or brilliance or rhetoric or sincerity, but by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' response is definitive. Your accusation doesn't stand, Satan, because they're covered in my blood. These sinful creatures are made righteous before my throne because I washed them in the blood that I spilt for them. On that hour that you thought had finished me, the hour of my greatest victory, the hour of my death, your accusations have no power here because these people are mine. That's what spiritual war looks like. Satan attacking the church by means of powerful accusation and Christ repelling him by the greater power that is his blood shed for us on his cross. And so he is expelled from heaven, verse 9. That's what the power of the cross, the means by which Christ's blood is shed, achieves. It achieves a heavenly victory over Satan. That's our hope. The cross and blood of Christ. As we said before, Revelation is just another gospel book. It contains, it contains the same truths as all the other books in the New Testament. And here we see the reality of what the cross achieves. The saints vanquishing Satan solely through the blood of the Lamb and, note, through their testimony, verse 11. That is the truth of the gospel that as Christians we are able to speak out in defense against Satan. That is our ammunition, Satan, your accusations will not defeat me because Christ has died for me. I am untouchable. However, as much as Satan can't touch Christ, and as much as he can't accuse the saints, he has been defeated. He will now go out after Christ's church regardless. D-Day has been won but VE Day is still to come. And this is our age. This is the battle we now face. And we see in verse 17 that despite Satan being beaten, the dragon became furious with the woman, the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. The church of Christ still at war with the vanquished Satan. But what does the heart of this war look like? Well, this brings us on to our second point of the evening, chapter 13. How Satan wages his war, the two beasts. Now, this is a meaty, juicy part of the book of Revelation, isn't it? This is we get to the good stuff, the really good stuff. We all have ringing in our ears, I'm sure, the many different ways people have tried to equate historical characters to these two beasts, and again, as we've been saying, that that's not right, that's not how Revelation is meant to be read. It's actually a lot simpler than that. 
these two beasts simply, simply represent evil across the whole world, across all ages since Christ left the earth. They represent evil that has one goal in mind, to get rid of the church and to get rid of the testimony of Christ. And this evil comes in two forms, as two beasts who are two agents sent by the dragon to unleash his power against the church. Read with me chapter 13, 1 to 2. This is the first beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne great authority. Now, the description is pretty horrid, isn't it? The beast is a mishmash of powerful animals. And we've also got the repeated description note of horns and heads and diadems, just like the dragon. Now, the animals that this beast is made up is really interesting. We have a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And these beasts actually come from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, they're, they're, they're represented individually as, as empires that are to attack and destroy God's people, that were to rise up. This beast then, quite simply, as John sort of merges all the individual animals together in one representative animal, is the representation of all evil governments that choose to outlaw, brutalize, and get rid of the church across the ages from Christ's ascension and his return. Notes as well, the diadems or the crowns. This is interesting. They are on the beast's horns. The crowns are on the horns and not on his head. Can you see that? In the dragon, if you notice in chapter 12, verse 3, the head, um, he has the crowns on his head. The head represents authority, whilst this beast has diadems on his horns. Horns represent strength. This simply means the beast's power comes through his strength and not through his own authority. He is under someone else's authority. He is under the authority of the dragon. He is, if you like, a puppet beast of Satan, in other words, who merely wields brute strength. So he is not subtle. The second beast, however, is far more subtle. Look at how he's described in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. This beast looks like a lamb, a lot more sweet and innocent, maybe mimicking Christ himself to some extent, but it speaks the words of Satan. Note what this beast does. It performs great signs, verse 13. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, verse 14. It wins the rest of the populace over, if you like, through miracles, maybe through miracles of economy, for example, in times of real difficulty. It talks a good game. It woos others by its cozy rhetoric and sharp talking. In short, the first beast is brutish governments and earthly powers all the way through the ages that hammer the church to death. The horned lamb, the second beast, is that government's spin doctor, if you like. It tells the world that what it is doing is good and necessary and right, whether it be departments of propaganda or the media or the intelligentsia. The first beast is strength. The second beast is deception. The church is being pursued by the dragon through his two agents, evil government and the false religion that promotes that government's agenda. 
And these two beasts, then, are simply the everyday reality for the vast majority of the church in the world today. And that we absolutely understand. Every day, just as Andy told us last week, we hear of Christians and pastors and families being murdered or, or removed or disenfranchised. Their rights being taken away by governments and organizations all around the globe. Every day. This is what the heart of this battle looks like for millions of Christians. But what of us? We live in a liberal democracy that, for the most part, protects Christians and the right to speak the gospel. Do we not read this bit? Not at all. Note what it says in verse 3 of the first beast. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. What's going on there? Well, I think it simply means that once one anti-church government falls, and people may celebrate, well, another will spring up in its place. This beast is never fully vanquished. It seems dead and gone, but it comes back somewhere else with a vengeance. It's like one of those infernal trick candles that you can never blow out. You think you've got it, but it comes back. And to think that this wouldn't be our experience in the future, even in Britain, is to read this far too glibly. It also misses the point, doesn't it, that we as the whole church, linked with our brothers and sisters in Christ, do experience this persecution. When the church in another part of the world is broken, we cry and we mourn for them. And we pray against that government. We feel their pain. And anyway, verse 4 tells us that even in our liberal democracy, we are not immune from the beast. Verse 4, they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? People across Britain today are worshipping Satan by worshipping the beast, by worshipping and hungering after earthly power, or promoting false religion, or proclaiming whatever the zeitgeist is, whether it be, in our case, atheism, scientism, materialism. All these things are promoted by the beast that are actively against the testimony of Christ and now of the church. And some of them look really attractive. And this we do face in Britain today on a monumental scale. Let's bring this home a little bit. Vaughan Roberts says something very helpful of this part of Revelation. He says we should always read these passages of cosmic battle in the light of what you are doing at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning or 5 o'clock on a Thursday evening, or 9 o'clock on a Friday night. Where am I going to come up against the beast in those situations, at those points in my normal day? 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, maybe a student in a lecture, listening to an aggressively anti-Christian, heavily secularized agenda, being taught that if she doesn't learn and replicate, she will fail the course. Five o'clock on a Thursday night might be a man leaving his office to spend good time with his wife and family and feeling the weight of materialism as he receives disdain from his colleagues and bosses at work about his lack of desire to work as hard as they are, creating more money for the company. He's seen as the lightweight. Or nine o'clock on a Friday night may be a person drinking with their non-Christian friends fighting against the allure of a highly sexualized culture. You see, we may not be persecuted in terms of our lives, but we are up against the beasts and the dragon in many other forms. 
As people around us and people in power over us, verse 4, worship the dragon, worship his beast, and question how anyone would not follow them both. And the pressure to give in to the world and worship the beast in these normal situations can be enormous. And so the beast makes sense. We feel his effects everywhere, from the school playground to the university lecture theater. And that is who we are battling in our very normal, everyday experiences in our Christian lives. And what do we do about it? Well, in verse 10, we are called to endure and have faith. We cling on. We keep going. We may be taken captive, we read in verse 10. We may be slain, but we are called to endure. And note, this call to endurance is after the dragon in chapter 12 is already vanquished. We are called to endure post-cross. We are being called to endure in the light of VE day. Christ has delivered the mortal blow and we already have victory in our sights. It is not a hopeless endurance. And we are called to endure after Christ has got us safe and secure in his blood. For the Christian, this endurance is run within the precious and protective blood of Christ, against which no accusation of Satan, no hammering of the first beast, and no lies of the second can separate us from the love of God. We battle as victors, like the Allies after D-Day, with victory in our sights, amidst real difficulty and hardship and temptation and loss but fully dependent on and protected by Jesus Christ, our victor. And to add to that, quickly before we move on, John shows us something else in this revelation that gives us hope of victory, and that is the mark of the beast. Again, very quickly and simply, this is not to be taken in a literal sense. It's not a literal mark. We don't go around at some point in the future peering at people's foreheads and right arms trying to work out whether they're Christians or not. That's not what's going on. The reason the right hand and the forehead are mentioned is because they represent action and thinking, respectively. So whenever anyone follows the beast in action or in thinking, they bear the mark of the beast. They are from that side of the war. When anyone submits to the false religion or to the anti-Christian government or the aggressive secularism of their culture, whatever it is, they are marked as followers of the beast. It's a symbolic mark. And what has it been 666? Well, as we've been looking at, numbers are very important in Revelation. We've already seen the number 7 used a lot. And, and 7 is the number that signifies perfection. It is God's number, if you like. Things of 7 come from him. And 6 is one less than 7. The beast falls short of perfection. He is, in other words, a failure. And it isn't one six, but three. Three is also important. Just as God is trinity, he is unified in his perfection. So the beast is a trinity of sorts, but he is unified in his failure. He is a triple failure. He is a complete failure. God is, if you like, seven, seven, seven. Holy, holy, holy. The beast is six, six, six. Failure, failure, failure. He may look like a god, he may wield incredible power, strength, and authority, but he is a triple failure. He is a complete loser. I'm not being trite here. 
what we read is that to follow the beast, to follow the spirit of the age, is to bear that mark. That person is a failure, failure, failure. And the reason the mark is here is not for us to try and pin it to a person or to an organization or to a barcode or to a unit of currency if people have tried. It's to show us what we're up against. It strips back the horrific facade of the two beasts. It takes away the horror of the leopard, the bear, and the lion. It takes away the lies and the attractiveness of the world. And we see them for what they really are, failures. And as much as the battle for the church is long and hard and difficult and dangerous and at some points profoundly scary, we are allowed to see in the cold light of day what we are really up against. Enormous powers that will eventually fail completely. While standing over me is the name Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. That's how we endure. That's why we fight. Because we cannot lose. Take away my job, the beast may. Kick me out of my country, the beast may. Kill me, the beast may. But ultimately, he will not win. And that's what this part of Revelation is telling us. We read this and say, I know what side I'd rather be on. And that brings us to our last point of tonight, chapter 14. How the war is won. It's good to get a good look at the enemy. We're in a war. We need to know what they look like and in what form they come. And that's what John does for us. But if the beasts depress us, then what we read in chapter 14 uplifts us. For sake of time, let us read chapter 14, verses 1 to 13 together. Page 1036. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Or to put it in another way, the lamb wins. This is where the battle ends. It ends with 144,000. We've already seen earlier in Revelation what that means. Twelve represent God's chosen people, the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. A thousand means a vast number. This is 144,000, the church, the innumerably vast, perfect, total, and complete number of God's church that has been so under attack by the dragon and the beast but who are now standing next to the Lamb on Mount Zion, the symbol of the place of the safety of the people of God, not with 666 marked on their foreheads, but with the name of the Lamb. They are joined up in a song that only they can sing as they are found victorious, having not prostituted themselves with the world. That's what verse 4 means about being virgins. Those who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These are the faithful endurers, and they are victorious, and this is the church. In verses 1 to 5 here, we see the outcome of the battle. In verses 6 to 13, we go back to a view of the current war again, where three angels fly over the world and call things out over the battle. One preaches the gospel to every tribe and language and tongue. One prophesies the end of Babylon, that is, the end of earthly powers. And one warns people of God's judgment for those who follow the beast and makes plain what that judgment looks like. And it is severe. This simply is the continued job of the church. This is what we do. We speak the truth. We preach the gospel. We say, we show people that worldly powers will eventually fall. We warn people accordingly that time is running out and we show them how to change their allegiance from the side of failure, failure, failure and to the side of holy, holy, holy. Ultimately, there is great judgment for those who will not listen to the Lamb. And ultimately, that great judgment is, is that they will never rest. Note that. But in verse 13, we see that the church is promised their reward from their labors. And those who die in this battle are with the Lord, reveling in the spoils of victory. What are the spoils of victory? Rest. Profound, true, spiritual, enduring rest. But as we close tonight, you've done really well. Note that as much as there is triumph for the church and the church is triumphant, it is only the Lamb who can truly display triumphalism. As much as the church joins in the victory and as much as we, through faithful endurance, conquer the beast every day, all praise and glory and credit goes not to the church, not to the 144,000, but to the Lamb. He is the one sole victor. Chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Lamb alone receives the adulation of the victor. On our Mondays at 10 o'clock, on our Thursdays at 5, and our Friday evenings at 11, how do I display faithful endurance in the face of the beast? In my agonizing temptations that plague me every day, how do I stand up against Satan's barbs of accusation? And in the light of revelation, how do I live out this cosmic, physical, everyday battle with victory of the cross behind me and the victory of the Lamb before me? I very simply, by means of daily dependence, throw myself on the one who has me entirely safe in his blood, and who sits and rides with me in this war, the one sole victor, Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you for these incredible truths. Heavenly Father, I I pray that uh, we would leave here um, understanding the reality that we face, that we are in a battle, that things are going to be really difficult, Lord, thank you for the joy that it is to be in this together. That is why you place us in a church and not as lone rangers. This is why we come to church, that we may encourage each other through your word, which speaks into our age, the age of the church. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go from here, we would feel that our confidence is not in in ourselves or in our own ability to be able to fight this war, but that it would be in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would keep us people who are strongly dependent on Jesus Christ through reading our Bibles and through praying every day. Lord, may we take those things seriously as we store up our armory for this battle by holding to the incredible truths of the gospel that say that we are safe in the blood of Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory that you deserve as our sole victor. Amen.